Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Michael Kramer of Natural Investments to talk about his experience with permaculture and economics. Michael is Managing Partner and Director of Social Research and Natural Investments, a sustainable and responsible investment advisor with 10 offices in nine states. A national leader in his field since 2000, Michael serves on the National Policy Committee of the Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investment, the Industries Trade Association. He is the co-author of The Resilient Investor, A Plan for Your Life, Not Just Your Money. A former executive director of Permaculture Drylands Institute, Michael has facilitated permaculture courses and teacher trainings since 1992. He lives in Kalua, Kona, Hawaii. I hope I said that right. Welcome to the show today, Michael. Great to be here, Greg. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's Kailua, Kona, just, just to correct the pronunciation there. Perfect. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Well, you know, I got introduced to permaculture in the late 80s in Santa Fe where I was living. And I attended courses, obviously, and then joined up on the teaching team at Permaculture Dryland Institute in the early 90s, Mm -hmm. just as I was starting the Youth Ecology Corps, which is a nonprofit that I started there to teach permaculture to teenagers and young adults. Oh, cool. And... I just really gravitated to the what we would call the invisible structures in uh-huh. culture, the non-tangible. Right. And I started becoming the person on the teaching team that really focused on that. That became my, my specialty, and I started putting my own money into sustainable investments as early as 1990. Wow. So I don't know. Something has drawn me to money as being, you know, it's just a, money is so neutral, Mm-hmm. But we can do amazing things with it. We can cause, you know, awful things with money. So I just really embraced it as an energy that you can use as a tool to create positive change in the world. And I don't know, it has stuck with me ever since. <laughs> and I went from becoming a client to becoming one of their advisors. Now I'm one of the owners. It's really been quite a theme throughout my life wow. to, to try to use money to create 
positive social and environmental change in the world. Yeah. So the you said you're one of the owners of Natural Investments. Yeah. Got it. Perfect. Been around since 1985. Uh-huh. But Christopher Peck and I are the, are, uh, the two managing partners right now, and Christopher. Uh, was on the Permaculture Drylands Institute teaching team with me in Santa Fe. We taught together for many years. I remember that. Trainings, yeah. And he was also on the board of Holistic Management uh, International. And so it's just great. We have continued our working together for, what, 25 years now. Uh-huh. Wow, cool. You, you, you used a term that I kind of want to unpack a little bit, invisible structures. Let's talk about that in the context of permaculture. Yeah, so I mean, in permaculture, a lot of the focus uh, of the courses and and also the texts that Mollison and Holmgren have written are really geared towards land-based systems. And when I you say that, what do you of, mean? Well, food and buildings and uh-huh. you know the tangible things that we can touch and feel with our senses that are largely responsible for our survival. Mm-hmm. As we all know, that's really what permaculture is. It's a system of of creating human systems based on the principles of nature. And the thing is, most people are drawn to permaculture because they're interested in gardening. Zone one, I would say, of their lives. Right. Which is, yeah, their own food, energy and whatnot. But, you know, we all live in multiple concentric circles of reality. We live at the community level. We right. we are global citizens. And so to me the invisible things things like politics and economics mm. and human dynamics. Mm-hmm. And all that, that to me is the glue that holds a whole society together. And that's not so much seen, which is why it's called invisible. So we don't really see it, but it is pervasive. And it is often the primary factor in whether or not some kind of tangible plan actually works. You know, you always hear about these things where, like, what is it that causes something to fail? And it's usually the interpersonal dynamics. Oh, right. A business or an organization. It's yeah. really that glue mm-hmm. or or just some unfortunate financial situations that, that arose from either through bad management or unpredictable, you know, factors. So uh-huh. we can have amazing green ideas to save the world, but if if we can't really deal with some of these invisible structures, it's kind of hard to make the whole system function. So it's a key right. piece. So some examples of invisible structures. Well, so for example, the, the field that I'm in of sustainable, responsible, and impact investing and banking, that's an invisible structure. Mm-hmm. Money is an invisible force, but an incredibly potent one. Got it. And what we do with it matters. How we shop matters. So just conscious shopping mm-hmm. you know, is certainly one of the inv- more invisible structures. And whether we do that locally or globally and layering what values on top of our choices. So things like politics, things like platforms of political parties mm. <laughs> and, you know these are the ideas that that really have a lot of impact on the laws and the judiciary and you know things that govern our lives so these things all matter too and imagine if those could become much more sustainable or regenerative in terms of their priorities imagine if we could reinvest with all that surplus military budget into food right. and shelter and yeah. real community development that can strengthen our lives instead of create deficits on every single level. Right. So, wow. yeah. So you and I actually go back a few, I'm going to say decades. Yeah. We worked together at the, uh, afar, but we, we worked a little bit together at the Permaculture Drylands Institute, and that's in New Mexico. 
Well, it was. We were really active in the 80s and the 90s, but right. it, it really sort of ended. But yes, that yeah. was in New Mexico. You were still there in Phoenix. Yeah, I was still... in Santa Fe. And we yep. had teaching teams all over. We right. had Albuquerque. We had Tucson. We had Phoenix. Yes. We even taught some courses up in Durango and down in Las oh, Cruces. Oh, nice. Right. And, uh, so how yeah. did you get from New Mexico to Hawaii? That's I want to know that story. Well, you know, I... After all those years in the desert, you know, my family and I, we had just had enough. And yeah. high and dry, and Santa Fe is really high altitude yep. on top of being dry. We yeah. were just were just fried on, on physically. So it was like, let's go someplace nurturing for the body. And <laughs> nice. it's sort of like obvious to pick yeah. Hawaii, you know, because especially this island, the Hawaiian island, it's sort of the exact opposite of the desert, you know, mm-hmm. especially on the other side. It's just more rain than anywhere in the country and really nice and wet and you know uh flowers growing out of right. the trees and oh, nice. stuff so you know just that was the big reason yeah but the other I, reason is that i joined my firm at the time oh, and, right. and one of the things about becoming an investment advisor and just sort of starting a business is that i could just take it anywhere right and so it seemed like a good time to to transition on on every level. Nice. Well, and and when we were chatting before we started recording, you talked about the life, your life there, and how it's. I'm going to use maybe not the right words, but it's quieter there. It's 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 a different, it's a different pace. Can you speak a little bit to that for those of us that are pining for that kind of life? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not for everybody. I mean, once you get outside of Honolulu. Mm-hmm especially in all the other outer islands, it's a very rural, very low-key place. My community has about 30,000 people in it. Wow. This whole island, which is the size of Connecticut, only has 180,000 people, mm-hmm. and it's huge. So, you know, really, what's really interesting about a place like this is that you realize that nature is the dominant force here, mm. and that yeah. people are just a small piece. <laughs> and, I don't, and I don't know if that's a... There seems to be a degree of humility as a result. Oh, yes. Uh, in the in just sort of the people who live here, yeah. we respect the land and the water and nature. Plus, we're just so a part of it. Like I'm talking to you right now from my outdoor office. I don't have windows that close on my office. Nice. It's just, it's just screens, uh-huh. and I'm just continually surrounded by nature. So it's very nurturing on the body. Wow. It's a great way of life. I have to say, Gotta even though that. our isolation is has a whole set of problems, and we are definitely trying to become more food and energy secure here because we have to import so much oh, yes. to survive here. And right. so there's a big momentum there. Hawaii became the first state in the country to commit to 100% renewable energy by 2045. Wow. So we are going for it. Um, we were, we're, we pay the highest electricity rates in the country mm-hmm. because of we are importing uh, coal and oil to burn for energy. How oh, ridiculous Lord. is that? <laughs> so, yeah, we're doing something about it. Right. So it, it's, it's finally after, I don't know, 10 years here to see people finally taking sustainability seriously right. here. It's fantastic. Our isolation means that we tend to be five to 10 years behind the mainland oh, right. on a lot of these things. So it, I'm just so happy that it's finally the consciousness. <laughs> finally shifting yeah well I'm, I'm experiencing that same thing here it's we're five to ten years behind here in phoenix because it's the wild west so yeah people are just kicking so. into this stuff now here so perseverance my friend there you go absolutely so let's shift this a little bit i want to talk about permaculture resiliency yeah. sustainability all these kinds of things so let's start with what is your definition of permaculture 
Yeah, it's a really tough one for me because I feel like I don't have a succinct definition, but I, I certainly have always used the definition that, that permaculture is the lens through which we look at reality modeled after the principles of, of nature. Oh, nice. And I like that because I've always described permaculture as a philosophy, mm-hmm. the lens. Yeah. It really, people, I think, sometimes confuse the the techniques and the strategies for the way of looking at life. And it really is a perception. It's, it's, it's the willingness to see the interconnectedness of everything. I find it to be a very spiritual thing, and I just feel like a lot of that gets lost sometimes mm-hmm. in, in how it's presented and shared and taught. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 such a, it's such a concept that it is hard to teach it. I know I've been teaching it for decades, too. So. Yes. You've been doing this a long time. You wrote a book called The Resilient Investor, A Plan for Your Life, Not Just Your Money. And one of the questions I want to ask you in the context of that is, why do you consider that resilience is the new sustainability? And what is sustainability as compared to resilience? So let's kind of un- talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I like to describe it as sustainability was my first true love. Right. Conceptually, when I got introduced to it, you know, a solution to all the cynicism that I felt about uh-huh. the world and about reality. And I felt like, oh, this was a paradigm I could embrace. And so I fell in love with sustainability. We got married. It's been an incredible marriage. <laughs> And I'm really happy uh-huh. and uh, also really great to see it growing in popularity compared to where it was uh, in 87. Right. So um, I feel like having an open marriage now. I guess that's really what I'm trying to say because resilience is my new love and I don't want to abandon sustainability. Sustainability is a key aspect, you know, but let's face it, who wants a sustainable marriage? That's not right. really good enough. Um, and I would say that on some level, the concept of sustainability has been twisted into a pretzel, and in some cases it's been co-opted and greenwashed and isn't really – it's being misinterpreted. Yeah, it's not, well. what it, it's not what it was set out to be, maybe? Yeah, things get dumbed down by after pioneering, yeah. right? It's you, kind of the successional – the way it's succession happens. If we think about succession in plant systems, it's the same thing with social movements and ideas. Right. It's the same, the same thing. And so the pioneer pioneers who come up with new ideas are often, you know, harsh and brash, just like a thistle right. in their new environment. <laughs> and uh, and it takes a while for them to create the fertility and uh, through which other species can grow or mm-hmm. other ideas can grow. So I feel like sustainability has spawned resilience right. in a certain way. The other thing that has gone on is that climate change has really become very obvious. And so... Uh, and the, and there are consequences that we are now seeing and experiencing. The other thing that's happening is that the interconnectedness of all the people on the planet, thanks to technology, how interconnected we all are, it's a wonderful thing, but it also has a destabilizing impact on the world because just as it's providing incredible opportunity for lots of people who didn't really have it before there was technology, mm-hmm. they're also now aware of all the problems of the world instantly. And and so when yeah. there are when there's turmoil in one place, it affects everybody. Yeah, so we all Greece know about can, it. Greece can have a financial fallout, and yeah. now our stock market will crash. Mm-hmm. Or you know other things like that. Some geopolitical instability uh, somewhere will cause the euro to collapse or something. And you know what I mean. So it's like yeah, the interconnectedness absolutely. of everything. It really brings to attention the volatility and the uncertainty of 
of modernity that I think is much greater than it ever has been before, yeah. at least in the past couple hundred years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure the medieval era was like this in a certain way, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, you know, hard to relate to that. But um, so resilience seems to be necessary to deal with volatility, to deal with ambiguity, so, so let me let, the let me complexity of this era. Yeah, let me ask you. We need to define resilience. Let me help you with that, please. So the way we define it is that it resilience is this quality that helps us to thrive because it helps us anticipate and prepare for things that might be disruption disrupted or disturbed, uh-huh. and it improves our capacity to withstand those shocks once they show show up. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a preventative quality. It allows us to rebuild as necessary when things do get disturbed or shocked, um, and then of course we can we can adapt and evolve for the future so that perhaps we don't repeat the same cycles of disruption. So there's a certain there's a certain long-term intelligence that resilience provides because it's it's both a planning discipline uh-huh. and it's also a, a way of doing crisis intervention and then repositioning yourself through the evaluative process of your life mm-hmm. to be able to then figure out, all right, how am I going to be even more resilient in the event of the next cycle of shock? So if, if I was going to start designing my life to be more resilient, what, if our listeners, what am I doing? Right. So a lot of this has to do with taking a real hard look at a lot of the aspects of your life because mm-hmm. we all have different strengths. I would call them assets, right? And they they can be personal assets, you know, you, your health, your your own sense of self, your career, your lifestyle, your family, your neighborhood, your community, your mm-hmm. ecosystem. You know, well, not, no, that ecosystem is actually another class of, of assets called tangible, right? Oh yes, these are the these yep. are the things. You have your house, you have your neighborhood, you have energy, you have your local food, you have you know nature itself that is tangible that supports all economic activity and all the other species right and so mm-hmm. all these assets are there and then you have financial assets and and it's where you shop where you bank where you where you reinvest your surplus to use a permaculture concept right. and um, and that can all be done in a way that uh, can help you to evolve as a person it mm-hmm. can help nature become more regenerative and it can help transform the financial system into becoming something more just and sustainable and empowering both local communities and also fixing the whole financial system so that it really does not continue to be disruptive and so that it it has the right priorities of taking care of people on the planet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, resilience has many different facets because it's your, your life is not just you sitting in your house and having your job. Like we, we're all part of, the web of life, the web of human society, and, and and we are citizens of this earth. And, you know, I feel like when people really look at their lives, a lot of meaning comes from assessing the strength of, of each of your assets, you know, right? your own personal. And so we ask people to inventory, take real stock in your mm, life, and mm-hmm. where are you strong? And where do you feel like you could use some more uh, attention, because really, uh, investing is not just about money; it's about your time, oh yeah, your energy, yep, and your attention, mm-hmm. and your focus. And then, yeah, your money can support those things. Right. But what we want people to do is is treat it as treat investing as 
figuring out how to invest really in yourself and your purpose and how you can nice. be a, a citizen and how you can you know take care of yourself but also extend your love to to nature and to community and to and to civilization and that's a big task but there's a lot of different ways to exert leverage in a system which of course is what permaculture <laughs> you know, encourages us to do is to is to really assess that so i feel like what we've done here with this book is taken permacultural ideas and right. without being without being explicit it's just woven throughout the whole fabric of my belief system now about right. how i look at reality and that's just pervasive in the book nice so so tell us a little bit about the book yeah so what it does is it um I mean, first we we make the case of why resilience matters because again of this this VUCA world. VUCA is an acronym that actually the military came up with. It stands for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. VUCA, and mm. this is what they this is what the military U.S. military thinks is the the basic description of current reality, and that we need to do resiliency planning, you know, to wow. be able to stand up to this and face right. the future. Because let's face it, there could be four basic future scenarios that we go through in the book, right? One is sort of the long emergency, that we're just going to have this breakdown scenario, mm -hmm. socially, economically, environmentally, just like a total meltdown, everything's in tatters. And if you look at a lot of the popular media today, that's kind of the, the scenario they're glorifying. Right. And, uh, and I know a lot of people who I would call them doomers, and they're fairly convinced that this is the only foreseeable future scenario. But it is only one. So another one, on the, all the way on the other side, might be the breakthrough scenario. We might have some amazing quantum exponential leaps, right? Those leaps could be social innovation. They mm -hmm. could be spiritual breakthroughs, technological breakthroughs, whatever. We could evolve in our wisdom about all the countries in the world and how we're going to solve problems with each other. We could have consciousness is a very fluid thing, right? Yeah. So breakthrough scenario. And then we have the two muddle through scenarios so mm -hmm. somewhere in the middle. Muddle through up might be considered more incremental progress, gradual improvement of some of the ways, you know, the quality of life indicators. Right. But the basic systems would be intact. They're the framework for the economy and for politics and our form of governance would be relatively intact, whereas the breakthrough suggests more substantive revisioning and redefinition, yes. like moving from a representative to a participatory democracy in this country would be an example of a major breakthrough. Breakthrough, yeah. So then there's muddle through down, which is sort of the relentless struggle, sort of rolling recessions, not really addressing the systemic causes of all of the problems that we have socially and economically and environmentally, and just having this kind of slow... Uh, decline with periods of hopefulness, but but kind of a downward trajectory. So, which is pretty much what that's pretty much what we're doing right now. Is I think there there's definitely a good argument for that. Yeah, certainly in some areas, mm -hmm. one could argue that we're having parts of all four of these scenarios oh, all yeah. over each other. Actually, yeah, that's true. Actually, I can get that. So they're all kind of there. It depends on what you focus on. But I think what we're the reason we wrote the book is first mapping these scenarios out. But I think it really people need to decide for themselves really what their own perception is right, right. what's your worldview and and we think that the reason that we lead people through the book to discover what their worldview is is because mm. once you know then wouldn't that be a tremendously important thing to know how to plan your life and how to invest your time energy yeah. and money let's face it if you think that the economy is a house of cards and that it's all propped up on on bs 
Uh-huh. You should not be investing in that system. Right. Right? Yeah, exactly. You're, you shouldn't have a job working for it. You shouldn't be investing your money on Wall Street, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. You know? And I think, um, I think all we're doing is recognizing that the more you are in touch with your core values and your core purpose, and the more you get clear about what direction you want to go in your life and combine that with your worldview about the world itself, like you can really make a nice marriage there between yeah. the world and yourself and really figure out, all right, well, where can I be the most effective? Mm-hmm. And where can I intervene in, in the system called my life? Can you, it's my can, own spiritual and personal development, and, yeah. and maybe I may need to reskill myself and learn new skills in order mm-hmm. to be more resilient in the face of potential disruption. Maybe I need to learn how to ferment my food or grow some. Grow or, your own food. Or build <laughs> some, uh, learn how to, you know, be, go off the grid and whatever it yeah. is. And maybe you want to change your career and have it be something where you can really be more of service into bringing a sustainable future into reality. I mean, there's so many different things to get in touch with, right? And your, your own community and your own neighborhood about, about energy Mm self-sufficiency and, and creating jobs and being an, being a, a, somebody that's involved in helping to facilitate community health. What about nature itself? You know, restoring watersheds, building soils, uh, creating biodiversity. I mean, there's so many things that we can do with nature to sequester carbon, to, you know, there are ways to do that. You can, you can do it with your body. You can do it with your money. You know, there's different ways that you can do yeah. that. So as people really look at what they are doing in their lives along these areas and what are they doing with their money, where do they shop, where do they bank, you know, what, what, what do they own? And, uh, and you can really then figure out, all right, look, I'm really strong in these areas. I've got all my money over here, and I really have all my eggs in this one basket. Maybe I should diversify. The idea is about resilience is that you should have your eggs in as many baskets as possible uh, in the yes. event of disruption in right. one of those realms. So let's say you're like most Americans who mm-hmm. have surplus financial resources. What do you do? You, you either have a 401K program right. or a brokerage account, mm-hmm. or you buy some land or a house typically as as long-term investments. Right. And so part of the thinking about diversification of risk is just don't put all your eggs in any one of those baskets (laughs) because, you know, they don't correlate to each other. And and if one takes a downturn, the other won't necessarily do so. But I know far too many people who have all their money in Wall Street, you know. Yeah. and, And that's got inherent systemic risk to it. I know other people who are completely out of that system and they're just sitting on cash and not really investing in anything. Well, there's they're missing out. Right. On, when there's on there's all kinds of opportunities. Yeah, there's too. all kinds of problems with just having cash. Just sitting on it. Yeah. And um, you know, I know a lot of people the relocalization movement has brought about a lot of interest in supporting the local economy and, mm-hmm. and increasing the financial multiplier effect of having having uh, that money recirculate as much as possible before leaking away. Yes. And that's, that's entropy, right? We, we yep. want to keep the resources as high as possible in the system. That's one of the permacultural principles, right? right. Exactly. Well, money is just that resource prevented from leaking away where it can really only benefit other, others. And so... Basically what you're saying is keep it local. Keep your money well, you local. you certainly should keep a lot of resources local. Yeah. Now, now there aren't any real local locally self-sufficient communities. We all rely on resources that come from elsewhere, but right. at the very least, we ought to be 
you know, on a, on a survival level, we ought to be able to see how much of our survival needs can be taken care of locally mm-hmm. and not imported that prop up our existence. So yes, and I feel like that movement is happening, but that's an investment. That's an investment of right. time, uh, money to make that happen, uh, getting people into positions of power and authority who can make that commitment to those things, those issues. I'm a big advocate of people running for office or serving on boards and commissions and advocating for, mm-hmm. for these kinds of things. I'm happy to see that happening more around the country. Yeah. System, that's systemic change. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't, it's not just personal, I guess, as well. Right. Exactly. It's like, yes, we all do need to get our act together personally. I'm not saying we don't, but there are other places one can, can focus as well. Mm-hmm. And that has to do with the business community. It has to do with community. It has to do with policy. It has to do with what types of corporations you choose to support with your dollars or your investments. And all kinds, um, all kinds of stuff. a lot of different pieces. So the book yeah. takes people through each of these zones of our lives mm-hmm. and each of these asset categories and tells and, and suggests that you integrate your worldview, think about, you know, your uh, goals and then try to design a master plan for your life, at least for the next few years, where you can really think, all right, well, where can I put my time, energy, and money to to cultivate a resilient investing plan for my life? Wow. Where I'm gonna, how can I be much more resilient? Mm-hmm. And every, it's going to be super subjective. Some people, oh yeah, it's going to be about it's going to be about relocalizing, uh-huh. deglobalizing. Other people, it's going to be the exact opposite. Some yeah. people are going to want to focus on the community. Other people are just going to want to do a lot of inner work mm-hmm. that they feel that they need to do. We're not prescriptive. All we're doing is laying out the, the map. Right. Saying the here are all the different people. areas that you can focus on. Mm-hmm. And uh, being resilient means paying attention to all of them and all, all the different assets. And, and then we present some ideas about types of investments that you can do. And our website, resilientinvestor.com, is full of a lot of examples of that. And nice. we're all constantly updating that so that you can go in and see Oh, in the in the evolutionary tangible category, what are we talking about? Yeah, you know, how are we going to transform nature exactly? You know, right, and and make it healthy. What are we What are we doing there? Can you give us give us your website again? Resilientinvestor.com is the book website. Mm-hmm. Naturalinvestments.com is our company website, and they obviously both link to each other. Perfect. So you had given us, given us a list of questions, and there, there's one that I'm, I'm staring at. I've been staring at it for about the past 10 minutes. It's like I've got to ask this question. Right. What types of evolutionary economic activity and investments are helping to transform our society? Right. Well, I would say there are, there are probably three basic categories that I'll briefly cover mm-hmm. as an answer. One is the use of technology mm-hmm. to bring investors and entrepreneurs closer together to each other. Yeah. So we're seeing lots of platforms that serve as intermediaries that enable people to find each other. Uh, and that yes. is fundamentally changing capitalism because mm-hmm. it's increasing the flow between the people who have the surplus and the people who need it. Uh-huh. And it's removing some of the traditional intermediaries who used to be in that space, mm-hmm. the banks and, oh, yes. the, and the investment firms and whatnot. So it's very democratizing. It's very empowering. People also are going to make a ton of mistakes because they're going to invest in things that that probably they shouldn't have. But even so, I think that this is ultimately very healthy for our system. And it's happening at the local level mm-hmm. with 
things like the slow money chapters oh, yes. that have that have popped up all around the country. The localism movement a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's also you can go on to Kiva.org and invest in some small uh, cassava farmer in Africa. You oh know, yes. And make two to three percent return on that, and your fifty dollars goes to help somebody start a small business somewhere. And that's because their that platform is using underlying community development financial and microfinance institutions who uh -huh. are, who are all over the world doing this. So right. microfinance as an is another really amazing mm -hmm. evolutionary system that has really caught on. And we're talking about small loans to to very low income people. Uh -huh. And traditionally, they have much lower default rates than <laughs> than the types of collateralized large loans that we see in wealthier nations. Right. And it's a really, and you can make a little bit of money off it. So it's not charity. You know, you can you can make two percent. You know, mm -hmm. and this that's better than what you can find in the American bank right now. And <laughs> yeah, you can make a huge account. positive social right. uh, difference. So I see that as really evolutionary and. Um, and then the crowdfunding legislation oh my gosh, yes. rules that are about to go into effect. I can't believe, I mean, it was stunned to get Congress to pass that law. Um, pleasantly surprised, I have to say. So the SEC right now is finishing up the rules, but mm -hmm. this year they will be they will be clarified, and it will allow uh, regular people who are not considered wealthy, uh, they're they're called accredited investors. Once right. you are over two hundred thousand, once you make over two hundred thousand a year, then you're in that category. And the, and traditionally, the government only allowed those wealthy people to invest in startups. But now, it's going to be legal for a startup to ask for money from regular people. And the rules will be there'll be a certain limit per person mm -hmm. that you're not accredited, so that you can't blow your life savings on it. Right. This is this is going to transform the entire financial system and the entire economy because wow. the biggest request that I get from people mm -hmm. is how can I invest locally or how can I right. invest in this really cool private innovative idea mm -hmm. that my friend has and they can't legally do it right now and so that's going to change this year and the floodgates will open and I think we don't even have a clue how how much is going to transpire. But because nice. of all the cynicism in Wall Street right. and the volatility yeah. in that system, I think we're going to see a mass exodus of a significant chunk of the capital in, the, in that market mm -hmm. to go towards these more crowdfunded things. Now, as an investment advisor, I would not be uh, doing my, my duty if I didn't warn everybody that there's an incredible amount of risk oh, in yes. local investing and right. private investing. And uh, you can literally lose everything. Mm -hmm. But I still think it's where people's passion is. I, I see it. I can tell. And right. people are asking me for, for ways to do it. And I think that's healthy. That's resilient. You should have a portion, in my opinion, to protect yourself from the volatility of Wall Street and the stock and bond markets and currency stuff. You should have something invested locally, in my opinion. Now, that might only be investing in uh, on a local loan fund or a credit union, but mm -hmm. it also might mean investing in specific enterprises and things that you believe in and getting your friends to rally around and do it too. That's what slow money chapters are designed to do, although slow money is obviously only geared towards food. The same thing can be done with other investments. I want to let people know about a, a local investing resource center if they're interested in this Please. topic. This is, one of the, this is one of the resource centers that we actually helped launch as a firm a couple of years ago. Ooh, tell it's me. Local, it's local-investing.com, and it is a free 
giveaway of how to invest in a local business. If you want to form a committee in your local community and see how you can collectively um, invest locally, uh, it's not like creating a chapter of a national organization. We just provide all the tools and checklists and term sheets, and people can just pour through that website and go do it themselves mm -hmm. without any intermediaries or consultants or or anything. And I feel like this is a really valuable service because doing due diligence on investment is, is challenging. It is. time-consuming. Yep. And it's not based on liking somebody. Right. Or knowing them a long time. It's It's got to be sophisticated. And um, so we gave people these tools. So local-investing.com is a great example of, I would say, an evolutionary uh, tactic. Yeah, because it's changing the, the system and, yeah. and giving people real tools and, and suggesting to people that, you know what, local investing might be really risky, but it, it still might be a good kind of risk to add to your life yeah. and not have all of your risk in, in Wall Street, for example. We almost called this book Weaning Off of Wall Street, <laughs> but uh, instead we made that one of our chapters because, you know, we didn't want to repel people from thinking that Wall Street should be avoided at all right. costs because I don't, I don't believe in that. We right. have to change Wall Street. We don't want to abandon it. Yeah, we, we have to reform it, and that's what I spent a lot of my time doing in my firm and my mm -hmm. industry is we're trying to change corporate policies and make the regulatory framework work to hold companies accountable and to make transparent all of their environmental and social practices as well as their political contributions. This is something we are fighting very heavily in Washington to, to make happen and engaging major corporate management themselves uh -huh. and voluntarily embracing some of these things because we think and we know it's good for business right to become more responsible and transparent so big time. changing corporate america is a big it's a lot of what i spend my time doing and it I sounds like, like it somebody's got to do it thank but you you know what these corporations are just people they're not evil they're just, just people. people once you start yeah. talking to them you realize oh my god they're just people mm -hmm. and you just talk to them yeah. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. sometimes they're even willing to change, you know? Yay. So I'm going to actually shift on you a little bit here. And I want to sure. talk about a time you failed and how you overcame that failure, what you might have learned from it. Well, I would say I'm going to have to go back uh, to when I was executive director of Permaculture Drylands Institute, uh -huh. actually, for three years in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And I really was excited to, after having been a teacher to take on that role and as much as I tried to make the case to philanthropic organizations about the incredible work that we were doing mm -hmm. I was not successful and I don't necessarily think it was me per se but I definitely felt like a failure because yeah. I was not able to attract any new resources I thought I was going to be able to it turns out prevention and design is just not as attractive to funders with limited resources right. as crisis intervention. Oh, yes. And even though I was describing uh, our, uh, the situation as crisis, it's hard to compare to, you know, teen pregnancy and substance abuse right. and violence and, you know, all these, uh, lots of other types of really serious social ills. So mm -hmm. anyway, I felt like a failure. I sort of felt like I had to leave having not been able to sustain the organization and, um, yeah, I mean, looking back, I, you know, it's hard to know what I would have done differently. Sometimes timing just is what it is. Yeah. 
but yeah, that was an impactful moment for me because a lot of things that I've created have succeeded. I and, was uh, well, and I was going to say it sounds like a lot of things that you've done have kind of fed off of that time in your life where you were learning that stuff. I mean, you're still doing the same work here. What thirty years later? Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. I uh, I think I'm just doing it a little bit differently now. Yeah, and I'm still an educator. Right you now, I'm still definitely doing education. Mm-hmm especially to investors who've never even heard that it's possible to align your values with your investments. There's still that beginner's mind out there. So right, I'm always exactly. educating uh, people, but yeah, it's taken a different form yeah. now. Sure. So what drives you? I, I think I feel like I'm here to be a voice for how things could be and that, I, mm. and that I'm here to... That's beautiful. To be a visionary and try to lay it out there as possibilities for us and say, you know, the, there, there are ways that are out there that are possible for us to evolve. Mm-hmm. And I think once I let go of my frustration about not getting there fast enough, I just started <laughs> focusing on the fact that I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a farmer. I am planting seeds. And these seeds are ideas. They're strategies for how to live in harmony with each other and the planet mm-hmm. and not all of them will germinate and once I realized that then I could let go of my attachment to having them all germinate because sometimes the fertility is there and sometimes it's not there yeah. and and you know not not all seeds germinate so I've become a little bit more Buddhist as I've gotten older of just sort of realizing that you know what matters is the act of planting mm. that is what matters Beautiful. The rest is up to God. The rest is up to nature. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just just don't give up. Just yeah. keep planting. So I'm all about education, and I have to know what one book has been most influential in this process for you. Well, I, I, I just have to be true and say that it was uh, Permaculture Designer's Manual uh-huh. from Mollison. It was life-changing for me. Yeah. And... I'd love to say my own book now, but that, that sounds a little too self-serving. But yeah, permaculture changed the way I looked at the world, and that man, that manual really inspired me, and and <clears throat> made me let go of my anger and my frustration, mm-hmm. and focus my energy on how to fix it. Yeah, and uh, I'll be forever grateful for that shift in mindset from that book. Beautiful. What one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Ooh, wow. Yeah. Well. I guess what I would say is, I've alluded to it a little bit here, which is that as much as we all need to be accountable for our own basic survival needs, Mm -hmm. especially our food and our water and our shelter and our energy, I just want to recommend that people, if they have any extra time to consider being involved in civic affairs, Mm -hmm. to share the the lens through which you look at reality with others who need to hear it and yeah that can be through education but it could also be through getting involved at the community level in decision making and being a being an influencer there or getting or becoming uh buddies with one of your congressional aides (laughs) you know i've learned that they're just regular people too and if you are a passionate person with some good ideas you will have their ear. And so I just want to encourage people to to not be cynical and to engage. A lot of them are responsive, whether it's state, federal, local level. 
They actually like it when people come forward who are not complaining but actually have solutions. Oh, yes, so that that's makes my sense. Advice. That's yeah. my advice is that people not shy away from that stuff and consider mm-hmm. taking it on if you have the, if you have it in you. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Michael. It's been a treat to chat with you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. How can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, you can call me toll-free at 888-779-1500. You can send me an email, michael at naturalinvestments.com. You can find me through both of the websites, resilientinvestor.com and naturalinvestments.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you again. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.